Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to listen to the preaching of your word. And we pray that you would do a good work in our minds and in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find the book of Colossians on page 638. Today, I'll be preaching through verses 3 through 8. Let me begin by reading verses 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So Paul, now that he's through his greeting, he begins the message of his letter. He begins the body of his letter by telling the Colossians that he is thankful for them. In fact, he is so thankful What he says is that he is so thankful for them that he intentionally thanks God for them whenever he prays to God about them. It doesn't mean he's always praying for them. It's not what he means when he says always, but what he means is whenever he does pray for them, he's always thanking God for them. That would have been very good to hear if you were the Colossians. I'm sure you have things and people that you pray for that you're not necessarily feeling thankful for. But Paul is thankful for the Colossians. This is a a kind and a warm way to begin his letter. And Paul does not always do that. Remember how he began the book of Galatians. He gives his greeting, and then in verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Exclamation point. That's the beginning of his letter. So he's got his greeting. Hi, how are you? I can't believe you're being so arrogant and foolish turning away from the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's got no kind words at the beginning of Galatians. He gets right into his criticism of the church in Galatia. But this is different. And it's not because there aren't any issues in the church at Colossae. There are issues. We're going to see that as we read through this letter. It's probably part of why Epaphras, the minister to the Colossians, is there. He's bringing Paul up to speed. He's giving him a report as Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Listen, I need to let you know about what's going on back home. There was a problem with some false teachers and some false teaching. We don't know exactly what it was. But it was apparently at least some teaching that said that, hey, we've got more to this Gospel. We've got more than Jesus Christ. There's there's more that you need to believe and Paul is going to write and he's going to address those issues that's not how he begins his letter he could have come at them critically right off the bat and said like he did with the Galatians hey listen why are you even entertaining these false teachers why are you even listening to this false teaching doesn't begin the letter that way 
very warm, very kind. Thankfulness is important. In Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So Paul says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and then love one another and fellowship with one another. Sing songs to one another. And while that's happening, here's what needs to be in your heart with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Or you've heard Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in... Do you know the verse? What kinds of circumstances? Does Paul say give thanks when things are going great? Of course. Give thanks when you feel like giving thanks. Give thanks when you get the promotion. Give thanks when there's enough money in the bank. Give thanks when your children are obeying you. Give thanks when everything's falling in line. It says give thanks, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in all circumstances. Why should I do that, Paul? And he says right away, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Because God wills that you would give thanks in all circumstances when things aren't going well, when things are going well, when the sun is shining or when the rain is pouring. Whatever's going on, give thanks in all circumstances. You say, how can I give thanks in all circumstances? That's ridiculous. If something's happening and I don't like it, or it's hard, or it's painful, I'm not sadistic. I'm not going to thank God. Gee, God, thank You. This is really painful. This is really hard. I'm suffering right now. Thank you, God. How do I how do I do that? Well, the only way you can do that. The only way you can do that is if you acknowledge that God is sovereign. The only way you can give thanks in all circumstances is if you believe that all circumstances are under God's control. If you believe that all circumstances, the ones you don't like even, are from the hand of God and that they're from the hand of God for your good and for His glory. So even those things that are difficult, that are painful, they're for good. There's purpose. They're attached to God's plan. They're for your good because He loves you. But only if you recognize that can you give thanks in all circumstances because then you can even be suffering and you say you can say, God, thank You. Thank You that this suffering does not mean that You have left me and forsaken me. Thank You that this suffering is actually a part of Your divine plan. Your good, perfect, and pleasing will. And it's for my good. And I'm going to love you more because of this. And I'm going to grow in you because of this. And you're going to be more magnified and glorified and worshipped because of this. Thank you, God. Otherwise, you can't thank God in all circumstances. Depression and discouragement rarely exist, let alone thrive beside thankfulness. Have you noticed that? 
How many of you, you don't need to raise your hand. How many of you deal with bouts of depression? How many of you deal with bouts of discouragement? How many of you are prone to despair? Well, these things rarely exist and they certainly never thrive alongside thankfulness. A feature of depression is typically losing ground in thankfulness. So before I get depressed, I lose some ground in this battle to be thankful. I lose perspective on the blessings that God has me. Have you noticed that? Are some of you experiencing that where just things get dark? Things get dark for you. Well, just think about that metaphor. Things are dark, which means there's no light that is penetrating. Now, does that mean that there is no light? It doesn't mean that there is no light. That's your experience right now. But the light is not breaking through that darkness. There's no cracks in it. There's no crevices. There's, never, there's, there's no openings where the light is coming through. Now, when that light is breaking through, that's thankfulness. That, that's, I have perspective now. I'm not losing sight of the blessings of God. The truth is that there is always something to be depressed about. That's, I think so. There's all, I have, it is very easy for me to um, initiate depression in me. Very easy. I find there are many things to be depressed about or discouraged about. Maybe for some of you, you just don't, you just don't see them. Just, I, I know some of you. I wish I was like that. It's like everything's just wonderful. Just totally optimistic about everything and just see the good and the, and the silver lining of, of everything. I wish I could be like that. Like this is this is a train wreck. This is terrible. There's no, this, that's what I'm prone to. There's nothing good in this. Now some of you, you you can see that. You see the good. You see the light. There is always something to be depressed about, and it will try and dominate your thoughts. So, one of the ways to fight that is that you and I have to be disciplined in reminding ourselves what to be thankful for. You ever notice in the Bible how often God says, hey, remember, 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 remember. What is He usually asking us to remember? He's not usually asking us to remember the things to be depressed about. It's like you're in the world. Okay? You're on your way to glory. You're not there yet. You're on your way to heaven. You're not there yet. Okay, the things of this world will bring you down. So what do you need to remember? Remember God. Remember His glory. Remember His thankfulness. Remember these things so that you can be thankful. So thankfulness becomes a sort of spiritual thermostat for Christians. It keeps you, keeps you regulated spiritually, emotionally. The degree to which you are thankful is the degree to which you are even emotionally just regulated and able to have perspective no matter what comes your way. Lose sight of that thankfulness and lose sight of those blessings and the good in your life and you see what happens. Right, you've experienced this. Richard Baxter, pastor in the 17th century, said that the thankful heart in Christ has a continual feast. In other words, if you set your mind to have a thankful heart, if you're a Christian, there's a continual feast for you. You have a, if, you, if you decide, I want to be thankful in all circumstances, and you're a Christian, then there's a table in front of you that is just endless 
things for you to feast on and eat and drink and devour, right? Truths about who God is. So if you want to be thankful, what Baxter was saying, there is, there is much to be thankful for. No one has as much to be thankful for as a Christian. So it's a continual feast. So imagine yourself at a table with all this wonderful food and drink. Now there comes times where that table is obscured. And so the fight and the battle is to, is to, is to remove whatever is obscuring the feast that is before you. Because if you just see it, if you just see it, you'd, you'd be okay. You'd make it. You'd get through. You'd get out of the darkness. So how thankful are you? How often do you think about what you are thankful for? Or how often are you struck by what you're thankful for? How often do you thank others? How often do you thank God? Ask yourself, do, do others have to remind you of things you have to be thankful for? Or are you good at reminding yourself what you have to be thankful for? I find people are usually, is naturally in one of those categories. Some of you, you're those of you who are steady, right? And you do maintain perspective. You, you, you remind yourself of all the things you have to be thankful for. Now, some of you may find, you know, I've seen that in my life. I consistently need somebody else to remind me what I have to be thankful for. And then you're okay. Then you get your bearings. and you, oh, That's right. Okay, thank you. I needed that. I needed that. That's wonderful. That's a, that's a good... Um, aspect of Christian fellowship and, and community. But, it may be good for you to desire and pray for the ability to remind yourself of those things that you're thankful for. God, help me to be less dependent on others. And help me to, to be, become somebody who's able to go to Your Word and receive that feast and, and, to, and to cultivate in me a, a thankful heart. And the next question you might want to ask yourself in regards to thankfulness is what are you thankful for? Are you thankful for temporal blessings? Good. You should be. Thank you for this food and thank you for this health and um, thank you for this situation working out and thank you for this reconciled relationship and thank you for this answer to prayer and that answer to prayer. That's good. You should be thankful for the the temporal blessings in your life, the things that God gives you, but they're, and they're good and wonderful, but you're, gonna, you're gonna, not going to take them with you when you die. But they're temporal blessings and they're still from the hand of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, Father of lights. Are you also thankful for spiritual blessings? You spend time thanking God for spiritual blessings, for salvation if you're a Christian, for comfort, the comfort that God gives you, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, do you find yourself thanking God for these spiritual blessings? Well, what is the reason for Paul's thankfulness? He tells us in verses 4 and 5. What is it that Paul is thankful for? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the Word of the truth, the Gospel. So here is what's commonly called the, the triad of Christian experience. right? Faith, hope, and love. Or the triad of Christian virtue. 
Paul groups these virtues together often. You've heard this. Faith, hope, and love. Yeah, they, those seem to go together in Scripture. Paul does this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 13, remember that famous chapter on love that Paul wrote? So now faith, hope, and love, there they are again, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul also said in the beginning of his letter to the Thessalonians, very similar to how he began the letter in the Colossians, what was he thankful for in the Thessalonians? Verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love. Let's look at each of them. First, Paul says he is thankful since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is thankful for their faith. This is something to be thankful for. These Colossians have faith in Jesus Christ. That's tremendous. These Colossians have faith in Jesus Christ. They trust Him. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. This is what it means to have faith in anyone. So they know Jesus Christ and they believe Jesus Christ and so they rely on Jesus Christ. They have taken hold of Jesus Christ. They love Jesus Christ. I need Jesus. I love Jesus. I can't be without Jesus. I can't be reconciled to God without Jesus. I can't get to heaven without Jesus. I can't survive without Jesus. That's what it means to place your faith in Jesus. To know Him. To hear Him. To listen to Him through His Word. To believe what He says. To obey Him. Trust Him. Rely on Him. Charles Spurgeon used to tell a story about two men who were caught in some rapids that were heading for a waterfall. They started off on boats. Their boats were capsized. And here they are, trying to survive, rapidly approaching what will be their death in this waterfall. They've got friends on the shore. And one of the men, when a rope was thrown from the shore, grabbed onto the rope and the other man grabbed onto a log that was floating by him. And you know how that story ends. The man who grabbed the rope is safely pulled to shore and the man who grabbed the log plunged to his death. Well, that is the difference between taking hold of Christ for salvation and trying to earn your own salvation. You need to be pulled to safety by God. And so you have to rely on Him and trust on Him. Now there are things in the world though that will float by that you can grab onto. And you can trust if you want. But you're just going to go over the waterfall. It doesn't end well. Faith is, is recognizing, no, if I grab this, I'm going over. If I grab that, I'm going over. If I hold on to this, I'm going over. The only thing that I can grab is this rope. That's the only way to safety. Now, a Christian has believed in Jesus Christ. We've taken hold of Jesus Christ. We've been pulled to safety by Him. 
Now we've pointed this out before. Paul, when he is thanking God for faith, Paul never congratulates his readers for their faith, but he always thanks God. Have you noticed that about Paul? He never says, hey guys, nice job. Good work. You are so faithful. Let me commend you for your faith. Paul never does that. Paul always thanks God, which is a reminder that faith is a gift from God. Paul knows that. Paul knows that. So here these Colossians are. They're very faithful. They've put their faith in Jesus Christ, but he doesn't thank them. He doesn't even say good job. He goes straight to God and prays in front of them, right? And says, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for this faith that they have. Because he recognizes that they wouldn't have faith if it wasn't from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this, the faith that is, and this is not your own doing. Because what was the only thing that a person could be doing in verse 8? The faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Elsewhere, Paul talks about the, the, the faith that God has given you and the, and, and, and the degree of faith that God has given you. You live according to the faith that God has given you. So God is the giver of faith. So, Paul looks and sees the Colossians are faithful. He says, thank you, God. He recognizes that this is a really big deal that these people are faithful in Christ. He recognizes that's a miracle. That's a miracle. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? If you have, you ought to be thankful to God for that. That's a miracle. Some of you can can get on that track that says, I wish I had more faith. I wish I had more faith. I, 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 I wish I was more faithful. I wish I could do... Listen, do you have any faith in Jesus Christ? If you have any faith in Jesus Christ, it was put there by God. It was a gift from God. I understand wanting to grow in faithfulness. We encourage that. That's a good thing. I'm not saying don't desire for your faith to grow, but don't lose sight of thanking God for the faith that you have. You wouldn't have any faith if it wasn't from God. You'd still be in rebellion. You'd still be dismissing God. You'd still be indifferent to God. You'd still be disinterested in God. But you're not. You're not. You love Him. You listen to Him. You want to please Him. You have a relationship with Him. Why? Well, it's a gift of God. Think of it this way as the Bible thinks of it. He gave you eyes to see. He gave you ears to hear. What else would you do once you saw who Jesus was? Once you understood it and believed it, you grab hold. No one sees and hears the Gospel and says, no thank you. When you see it, you hear it, I mean, really see it, really hear it, not just words going in your ear, but you see it, you hear it, you believe, understand your sinfulness, the problem between you and God, the remedy that is through Christ. No one says, no, thank you. Say, thank you, God. We cry out to Him. We cry out to Him in faith. Then Paul says, he's thankful for your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love 
that you have for all the saints. Paul is thankful for the love of the Colossians. They are a loving people. And they are especially known for the love they have. What does it say? For all the saints. Oh, like St. Peter and St. Paul and St. No. Saints in your Bible, hagios, just means the holy ones, the Christians. Those who have been set apart. Those who have been saved. It means that they have a, a great degree of love for one another in the church. Doesn't mean you only love people in the church. No, you love your neighbors yourself. God loves us. We're able to love others. But there's a special love that we have for those who are part of our spiritual family, for those who are part of our church. They have a self denying concern for their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's important. It's the mark. John talks about this in 1 John. This is a mark of Christianity. A Christian is going to love his church. A Christian is going to love other Christians. He's going to have a self-denying concern for other Christians. It's not just a hi, bye, that's not my problem, that's your problem, see you when I see you. It's a, a deep concern for one another. So that when he's rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. When he's mourning, I'm mourning. I carry the hearts of our people in my heart. That's Christian fellowship. That's the church. We have love for one another. These are not in Colossians a bunch of isolated individuals apparently. They are together. They are loving one another. Which becomes a reflection of God's love for them. Remember Jesus is, John MacArthur puts it this way, Jesus is like a magnet right, that pulls sinners to Himself but also pulls sinners to one another. Christ is like a magnet. We're united to Christ. And when we're united to Christ, the head, we're united to His body, which is the church. It's like a magnet pulling Christians to Himself and pulling Christians to one another. Paul brings this love up again, if you see at the, at the end of our text in verse 8. Epaphras, he's talking about, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And we're not surprised to find this love in the Colossians. We're not surprised to find this love in any Christians. Because Romans 5.5 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Isn't that put nicely? I think that's nice to hear. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Christian, God's love has been poured, poured into your heart. So you've been given a new commandment to love others, but you've also been given the capacity to love others because of God's love for you. And verse 5, now verse 5 tells us the cause of their faith and love. Because, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So hope here is the cause of Faith and love. In other words, in this case, Paul is saying the Colossians' faith and love springs from hope. Remember, in the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking. That's not what hope is in the Bible. I hope the Giants win today. That's wishful thinking, right? That's not what hope is in your Bible. It's not a, I hope so, but the future is uncertain. 
Hope is a desire in the heart regarding a future that is certain. That's biblical hope. A desire in the heart regarding a future that is certain. And what is the certain future the Colossians are sure of? The hope laid up for you in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Paul is thankful. Paul's thankful. He is thankful because the Colossians have faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is thankful because the Colossians love one another. And Paul recognizes and wants to remind the Colossians that the Colossians are faithful and loving because they have received and believed the Gospel. So Paul says, I'm so thankful. This prayer is instructive also. I'm so thankful for your faithfulness. I'm so thankful for how loving you are. And I'm so thankful for the Gospel because that faith and that love is because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. The truth of God, he says, the Gospel. Let's read these verses together. I want you to hear all of that in verses 3-5 through that we've read so far. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. And now what is the ground of that thankfulness Paul has? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. And... What is the ground of this faith and love that they have? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And where did they learn of this certain future hope in heaven? Of this, you have heard before in the Word of truth, the Gospel. So where did this faith and love come from? You see that? The Gospel. Where did this faith and love come from? The Gospel. The Word of Truth. In Mark 16, you remember Jesus told His disciples to preach this. He said, go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. We're told not only to preach the Gospel, but to strive for the Gospel. Philippians 1.27 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. So we preach the Gospel. We strive for the Gospel. According to Philippians 1.5, we're in the partnership of the Gospel. 
Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8 not to be ashamed of the Gospel. In Romans 1.16, Paul said the same about himself. He's not ashamed of the Gospel. And then there's a warning from Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 not to put obstacles before the Gospel. Paul is always right talking about the Gospel. You need to preach it, Christians. You need to strive for it. You need to recognize you're in a partnership of the Gospel. You need to defend the Gospel. You need to make sure there are no obstacles before the Gospel. You better not ever be ashamed of the Gospel. Always talking about the Gospel. And here the Gospel is resulting in this change in the Colossians. This faith and love. So do we all know what the Gospel is? Gospel means good news. Gospel means good news. Not like the Giants won. That's not good news compared to the Gospel. The Gospel is the best news. It's news that's so good that it's to be, uh, in this day, it's to be heralded. Like if the army was away and they achieved a victory, they would have come home declaring the Gospel. That's how the Word would have been used. And they would have been singing and dancing in the streets because they had been liberated because it was good news that had great benefit for all of them. It was that kind of good news. That's what... The Gospel is good news. Acts 20.24 calls it the good news of the grace of God. Romans 1.9 calls it the good news of His Son. Romans 15.16 calls it the good news of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls it the good news of the glory of Christ. All the same thing. Ephesians 6.15 calls it the good news of peace. And in Revelation 14.6 it's called the eternal good news. One of the places the Gospel is briefly summarized in the Bible is the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. You might want to commit them to memory. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the Word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, what is it, Paul? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus came, lived, suffered, and died in the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God. This is the good news. The bad news is that God is your judge and you have sinned against Him. That's the bad news. God is your judge and you all have sinned against Him. And the good news is that Jesus has died so that sinners may be forgiven of their sins if they will repent and believe in Him. So you've heard us say we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No other way we can be saved than through Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel. 
So the Colossians heard that Gospel. They heard the Word of Truth. They heard this good news. And it has changed them. It has led to new life. And Paul is thankful for this. So what really, we break that all down, what really is the cause of his thanksgiving is that they heard the Gospel and that the Gospel has borne fruit in their lives. That's what Paul is thankful for. So now in these last three verses, verses 6-8, through eight, we, we just hear more about the Gospel. Let me read verses 6-8 through eight and then we'll take it a bit at a time. The Gospel, and then verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So verse 6, we learn that the Gospel is meant for the whole world. Which has come to you, he said in verse 6, as indeed in the whole world. The Gospel is not meant to be isolated to a region, or a people. The Gospel is meant for the whole world. That's why you remember the picture in the end at the great wedding feast in Revelation? What's, what's pictured, right? It's not, it's not a bunch of 21st century white Americans. And all the Caucasians gathered around the throne. It doesn't say anything like that. Because the Gospel is meant for the whole world. Revelation 7.9 After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And this is already beginning to happen as Paul writes, which is why he says, the Gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world. We also learn here that the Gospel bears fruit. The Gospel bears fruit. The Gospel, we talked about this last Sunday, the Gospel changes people. It is, he says, bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. So the Gospel is going to the whole world. The Gospel is coming to you. And it's increasing. right? Which means more and more people are believing the Gospel. But it's not just more and more people are believing the Gospel and then nothing is changing. It's bearing fruit. So it's both and. It's, it's increasing, he says, and it's bearing fruit. We know this was happening before this in the early church in Acts 12.24. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. Do you remember the occasion? There's a great verse in the middle of a great story in Acts chapter 12. Because Herod, who's an enemy of Christ, who's an enemy of the church, who thinks that he's something. Do you remember that story? And he's, he's being worshipped by the people. And when he talks, the people say, this is the voice of God and not the voice of man. Herod likes that. Says that, that sounds good. As we would all be tempted to think. That's right. My voice is the voice of God. Listen to the way that people bow down to me and worship me. And then do you remember what happened next? It, the Bible is just so quick. It says, and then Herod fell down and died. 
and worms ate him. Why? And it tells us why. Because he did not give glory to God. He did not give glory to God. So it tells that story. And then the next verse, well, the next verse says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So here's Herod trying to fight the word of God, trying to fight Christ and fight the church. And Acts 12, 23 says, and then he fell down, died, and worms ate him. But the word of God continued to multiply. You see what it's telling you? So if there's two teams, it just gave you a score. Right? Herod, zero. <laughs> Jesus, one. Herod died, eaten by worms. That's negative. It's negative. Not a good day. That's defeat. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. And Paul knows that. It's bearing fruit. It's increasing. We also learn that the Gospel bears fruit once it is heard and understood. He says this about the Colossians. And you understood the grace of God in truth. So it's not just something you hear. It's something you have to hear and understand and then the change comes. And that's what happened in the Colossians. Or the Colossians. And what did they understand about this Gospel? The grace of God in truth. The Gospel is rooted in grace. We know this. The Gospel is rooted in grace. Grace is what you are given when you are given something good that you do not deserve. When you're given something good that you do not deserve, you've been given grace. The Gospel is rooted in grace. And then verses 7-8, through finally we are reminded that the Gospel is spread by Christians. You remember why there's Christians in Colossae? Because a man named Epaphras traveled about 100 miles south to Ephesians. He heard Paul preach the Gospel. He got saved. He went home and started preaching the Gospel to others. And now there are many Christians in this little insignificant town that Paul writes to. Why? Because the Gospel is spread by Christians. Just as you learned it, he said in verse 7 and 8. Where did they learn it? From Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Romans 10, 14, and 15 affirms this. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is why we want to see the Gospel spread. This is why we want to see the Gospel spread to all peoples and to all nations. Can people be saved and reconciled to God if they have never heard of salvation in Jesus Christ? What is the answer, Christian? No. No. The person who has never heard of Jesus knows enough to be condemned. They can go outside and watch a sunrise and a sunset and know there's someone greater than them. Someone they are accountable to and will be held accountable by. But we are saved through Christ alone and there is no way to the Father through Him. That should motivate us to do things like Global missions, for example. They should motivate us to share the Gospel with people we love, with people that we know. 
because the gospel is spread by Christians. So to summarize, Paul is thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is spreading throughout the world as he writes this and will continue to spread throughout the world through men like Epaphras and Colossae. Just like in the rest of the world, it is changing people. It has resulted in the Colossians placing their faith in Jesus Christ and it has resulted in the Colossians loving one another. So I thought about this question this week. I thought to myself, I wonder what will be said of this church. I wonder what will be said of these people? What will be said of all of us? And I think it boils down to what we do with the Gospel. If we're taking Paul's words seriously, it will depend on what we do with the Gospel. Now, I'm not saying believe and obey the Gospel so that good things will be said about you. But, in this case, Paul speaks for God. Paul has good things to say about the Colossians. God has good things to say about the Colossians. Paul speaks for God. Paul is pleased with the Colossians. That means God is pleased with the Colossians. So when I wonder what people say about us, I wonder what people say about us and I'm concerned about what people will say about us as it reflects what God would say about us. Will God be pleased with us? I would encourage each of us to consider what God has to say about you. What does God have to say about you today? Does God consider you a friend or an enemy today? Did you come into this place as an enemy of God today? And remember, your opinion of whether or not you are a friend or an enemy to God is not the most important opinion in that relationship. There are many people today who think that they are not enemies of God and God is their friend and God would say, I am not your friend and you are my enemy. So what you've got to figure out is what's God's perspective on the relationship? Not, oh, I'm okay with God and I'm, I'm squared up with God and sure God loves me and, and God's my friend. What are you basing that on? Anything substantial? Or is it just a whim? And for most people, at the end of the day, it's a whim. Just, I know it in my gut. I feel it. I know I'm a good person. Good compared to who? Compared to others? Well, what about compared to God? Because God is the standard. His law is the standard. His requirements are the requirements. So did you come in here today as a Christian? One who has submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and your treasure? You know Him. You believe Him. You trust Him. You obey Him. Enjoy Him. Treasure Him. Proclaim Him. Is that who you... If you're not that, you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you're actually an enemy of God. Now by faith, you can become a friend of God today. By faith. 
And this gospel that we're talking about is the same gospel that came to the Colossians. We haven't changed it a bit. It's the same good news. And you must believe this good news. You must accept this good news. And you must trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But some of you may have come in today and maybe you're not an enemy of God. I wasn't sure how to put this, but you're not all that faithful a friend of God. You're saved. You're saved. But your life is basically just an enormous testimony of how patient God is. And you're not really concerned with easing that burden for God. You're not concerned with godliness or holiness. You're not concerned with your actions or your behavior or your mouth. And you're really trying to figure out how to get the most out of this world and still make it to heaven. And God is so good and so gracious that multitudes, I believe, will stumble into heaven like that. He is that good. He is that gracious. And every requirement is met in Christ. And if Christ is your Savior, He's your Savior. And it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't. But some of you might be taking advantage of that. Some of you might be using that as an excuse. Some of you need to grow more disciplined and you need to be more diligent. And you need to be concerned with honoring and glorifying God now. You need to be rising up against the sin in your life and taking it more seriously than you do. Not winking at it, sweeping it under the carpet, denying it. You are a friend of God, but you're not all that faithful. Now all of us, to some degree, fit in that category, don't we? Thank you, God. Thank you for saving me. Help me. Help me to live in a manner worthy, Paul says to the Colossians, of the calling. You have called me to you. You have called me to heaven like a magnet. I've been pulled to you and I'm being pulled to heaven. I'll be united to you one day face to face. Help me now though. Help me now to not abuse that or forsake that or ignore that. Help me to be faithful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. For those of us who are Christians today, we thank you for saving us. We ask you continue to save us. And for those who are here who are not yet Christians, who are not yet your disciples, who have not trusted in you, I pray you would open their eyes, open their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 26 in preparation for our time of communion. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, 
Drink of it, all of you. For this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. One day, Christians will all share a face-to-face meal with Jesus again that He alludes to in Matthew chapter 26. And for now, with Jesus, yet not face-to-face with Jesus, we continue the taking of this bread and this juice. We as Christians are in covenant with God in relationship with God on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is symbolized by the bread and the juice and it is remembered by our consumption of it. So if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, whether you are an affirmed member of this church or not, we invite you to share in this time with us. If you are not a Christian, you should abstain and not participate in this. If you are not sure you are a Christian, you should abstain from the bread and the juice this morning. Because it is a symbol of our union with Christ and our union with His people. I will pray. And then we have leaders who are up in the front who would like to serve you. As you know, if you could empty into the center aisle, come forward and then return through the outer aisles and then we'll take communion together as a church. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, bless this time and may You be glorified as we remember the sealing of our covenant with You through the blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.